some years ago, one of my my main teachers, um, Shinzen Young, made a what seemed like a kind of offhanded comment that I hadn't heard from him before, and I don't believe I've heard since. And uh, he said. He said there are two maxims, two guiding principles of spiritual practice. And uh, he said the first is don't fight with yourself at any level. Don't fight with yourself at any level. And the second was uh, take feedback. It was a very uh, striking summarization of the spiritual path. Don't fight with yourself at any level and take feedback. And so so tonight I wanted to uh, to reflect on, on feedback, on taking feedback, giving feedback in the context of a dharma practice, in the context of, of this path of moving towards uh, wisdom, compassion. And in a certain sense, you know, I'm talking about feedback as, as I think Shinsen was talking about feedback in the narrow sense of like somebody comes up to me at the end of the talk and says, can you speak louder, right? Very narrow kind of feedback. But um, in a certain sense, our whole path is about taking feedback. Our whole path, the whole of the Dharma path, is about living with our eyes open and and learning. Right? And so maybe we've heard that, uh, I think it's maybe a, a title of a collection of, of talks from Ajahn Chah, like everything is teaching us. Everything is teaching us. The Dharma is everywhere and everything is teaching us. And so from this perspective, everything we're doing on this path is about uh, actually taking feedback. Now, part of what I what I appreciated um, about this emphasis on taking feedback is that it helps break the spell of omniscience, the sense that we just might know everything. <laughs> so this is. Um, a quote from uh, from a book 
by Catherine Schultz called Being Wrong, Adventures in the Margin of Error. Uh, and it's a... Uh, well, you'll see how this is connected. So, Why is it so fun to be right? As pleasures go, it is, after all, a second-order one at best. Unlike many of life's other delights, chocolate, surfing, kissing, it does not enjoy any mainline access to our biochemistry. And yet the thrill of being right is undeniable, universal, and almost entirely undiscriminating. We can't enjoy kissing just anyone, but we can relish being right about almost anything. (laughs) Our indiscriminate enjoyment of being right is matched by an almost equally indiscriminate feeling that we are right. Most of us go through life assuming that we are basically right basically all the time about basically everything. (laughs) As absurd as it sounds when we stop to think about it, our steady state seems to be one of unconsciously assuming that we are very close to omniscient, all-knowing. If we relish being right and regarded as our natural state, you can guess how we feel about being wrong. For one thing, we tend to view it as rare and bizarre. For another, it leaves us feeling ashamed. Of all the things we are wrong about, this idea of error might well top the list. We are wrong about what it means to be wrong. Far from being a sign of intellectual inferiority, the capacity to err is crucial to human cognition. Far from being a moral flaw, it is inextricable from some of our most humane and honorable qualities. And far from being a mark of indifference or intolerance, wrongness is a vital part of how we learn and change. Thanks to error, We can revise our understanding of ourselves and amend our ideas about the world. However disorienting, difficult, or humbling our mistakes might be, it is ultimately wrongness, not rightness, that can teach us who we are. This is a very powerful suggestion there. And insofar as violence depends on certainty, this kind of opening to our non-omniscience can lead us towards a path of non-harming. The Buddha said we had to wake up from greed, hatred, and delusion. And we very likely know the fires of greed and hatred. We're sitting here trying to mind our own business and the thought arises that 
cookies. There are cookies in the back. We may need to rethink that, actually. The cookies in the back of the meditation hall. Anyway, there are cookies in the back, and all of a sudden our salvation depends on the break and having $3. And uh, This we can actually very clearly know as... uh, there's a kind of fiery intensity of longing, you know. And even though the cookie itself might be very pleasurable, the longing, the greed for it, is definitely not pleasurable. And not having the three dollars. <laughs> it's on me, really. So... Um, so there's, uh, so we know greed and hatred, aversion, resentment. This also announces itself very prominently in our minds, right? We know when we don't like something, someone. And as we were talking about during the the question and answer, we can actually bring a view, an intentionality to aversion to recognize like hatred can never end well. It can never end well. And we see that enough. We see the suffering, the dukkha, enough that we, when hatred arises, we, we know it as a cause of separation and suffering. But delusion, right? how, do we, how do we recognize that? In a certain sense, we only can see delusion, our confused notions of ourself or happiness when we bump into things, when we bump into problems in relationships, when we bump into suffering. This is actually an opportunity to learn to see delusion. But it's, it's tricky because it's often talked about as the kind of, like the water that we swim in. You know? Right, like that quote from Schultz, we just are swimming in our view. And it can be quite tricky to actually um, see the cracks But um, feedback, welcoming feedback, is a very powerful way of seeing delusion. Because in feedback, and in, in especially in critical feedback, what it does is it provides some insight into the architecture 
of self-view. The architecture of self-view, meaning the, the ideas, the, the notions from which we build our sense of self. And the sense of self, from the Buddhist perspective, is cobbled together with very strong glue, nevertheless cobbled together. It is born of delusion and our, the freedom of our heart depends on seeing through. Feedback is um, a kind of opportunity to begin to see through. So I'm not not a uh, not a physician, but uh, so bear with me with this analogy. Um, there are some forms of uh, of heart disease that that can't be detected when the heart is at rest. So if you look at the patterns of blood flow or the electrical activity of the heart, when the heart is at rest, when the person is just sitting, there will be no evidence of disease. And what needs um, to be done in order to diagnose certain forms of heart disease is the doctor will do a cardiac stress test where maybe the person might, for example, walk or run on the treadmill and elevate the heart rate. And it's only in the context of that elevated heart rate that you can begin to see um, the health or um, disease of the heart. And in the same way, we swim in self-view. And we need to almost stimulate self-view in order to see how and why we cling to a particular sense of who we are. And so just like the cardiac stress test stimulates the heart, the mechanisms of feedback, of opening to feedback, is a way of kind of um, stimulating self-view so that it can be known more clearly. Now, uh, interestingly, we can actually welcome feedback, whether it's spot on or off base. Normally we think, okay, I'll accept, I'll welcome the feedback that's spot on and the, that which is off base, like I'll just brush aside. Yeah. Um, and we, of course, are encouraged to do that, to leave feedback that's not relevant, that's off base, aside. But in the initial moment, we can actually 
practice trying it on with the, an interest in seeing how we cling to a particular view of self. And from that perspective, it doesn't matter whether the feedback is right or wrong. We can actually try it on as a way of seeing where we're hooked. The the extent to which any self-definition has a kind of sting to it, to that extent, my behavior will be distorted. So to, to make it concrete, the extent to which I am insisting in this moment on being a good teacher, to that extent, that becomes a priority That, and that my agenda then becomes self-aggrandizement or protecting my self-view or being special. And what necessarily takes a back seat is the intention to be of value, to say something that's useful to be a cause of, of, of uh, less suffering. But the extent to which, oh, I'm not a good teacher, to the extent to which that stings, to that extent, my behavior will be distorted. And so the Dharma path is one about Uh, draining the emotional charge from self-definition. I am this, I'm not that. We come into the practice and these things are like supercharged. There are some self-views that we don't even look at for many years or decades even because they're so cherished. I am this. I am not that. But we're living with a burden because those, the sting of those self-definitions because we have to become territorial and defend ourselves, we, life feels more v- precarious. Sometimes I think about um, my practice as my aspiration for practice is to be, become un- unoffendable And that doesn't mean to uh, that doesn't mean to condone harm or let other people tell me who I am or whatever. 
it means that um, that we work through the kind of soft spots in the heart mind deeply enough so that there is no more clinging to I am this. And that's a very free way of being in the world. And we can use these kinds of, uh, these opportunities of feedback as a way of exploring our edge with that. Because when we get critical feedback, as I'll talk about more in a few minutes, so we get that defensiveness almost automatically arises, right? Whether the feedback is on, spot on or off base, there's a very strong pushback. But before we even get into that, it's also important to acknowledge that, uh, that sometimes positive feedback can be just as intense, just as difficult to take in So normally we, it makes sense, like, okay, the critical feedback, yeah, I don't, I'm going to be defend against that. But the positive feedback, yeah, I'll welcome that. One, uh, one meditator was saying, we were talking about this, this topic, and uh, she said that the intensity of the positive feedback is almost perfectly matched by the intensity of the self-critical voice that rushes in, right? And there's a kind of, um, yeah, my, my experience is there's a, real, uh, there's a real vulnerability in actually taking in positive feedback. And that kind of intimacy that needs to be tolerated. And so I know that I, I've tried to be more mindful of this, but you know, I think for years probably people might say to me, like, wow, that was a great talk. And I'd be like, I'm stupid. <laughs> Glad it was good. <laughs> and it was dramatizing it a bit, not that much, but a little bit. Um, but it was like an attempt to like just drain the charge out of that moment. Like there's like an inability to tolerate that, uh, that. And maybe in part because in taking in positive feedback, it kind of... Um, for me, it sort of stimulates like um, it stimulates a sort of childlike narcissism, you know, um, of like a young young child being praised or something. And there is a, a kind of that feels very like a very exposed, vulnerable way of being 
actually for one's own narcissism to be visible. Because normally we don't, we just try to look cool. But if people can see the effort and enjoyment in looking cool, that's a super vulnerable thing. Right? So somebody came up, I, I gave this talk another group, and uh, somebody came up to me, I was sharing about my sort of, uh, about this point exactly, that sense of the compliments stimulating one's narcissism. And he came up and he was like, you know, kind of like, shame on you. It's not, it's not narcissism. It's, uh, and he brought up that quote about, from uh, Marianne Williamson about like, we're, we're, we're less afraid of our, you know, brokenness than we are of our gifts and greatness or something. Now, in the process of um, opening to feedback, we need to to tolerate um, disorientation. That that's a very uh, sometimes it can be a quick a quick experience. But what happens when? Um, the ego gets challenged is it's like the rug is pulled out from underneath our feet. Because ego is like the reference point for our life. And for the most part, we continually reiterate. We repeat again and again, I am this. I am this. I'm not that. And our days, in a certain sense, are spent repeating those phrases in subtle ways. And so when we are actually challenged, like, oh, I thought I was a competent teacher, but I get some critical feedback, it's like the the ground is starts to shake. And our capacity, our tolerance for disorientation is is, uh, low. It's very low. And so we try to get our bearings back. We try to sort of reestablish the ground. And one of the ways we reestablish the ground is to say, no, 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 you are wrong. The defensiveness arises. And that's natural that it does that. But part of our practice is learning to tolerate disorientation. And this is a theme in much of our Dharma practice is learning to feel safe even though we don't have the familiar reference points. 
to feel safe even in the free flow of groundlessness. And when we're swimming in that disorientation, in the process of receiving feedback, we can just practice. No ground. Don't know who I am. Don't know if this is going to hurt me. Somebody, um, a, uh, <coughs> excuse me, nonviolent uh, communication. I, I, I know very little about nonviolent communication, but um, I heard a, a trainer, Newt Bailey, who, um, who summarized a few points, um, kind of very concrete recommendations around this feedback process um, in giving feedback specifically. Um, and his suggestion was to to be to be ready for defensiveness, to acknowledge the receiver's efforts and concerns, to use questions and listening to seek a better understanding of of the feelings on the receiver's feelings, and to invite feedback on how you can support the person receiving the feedback. And that, that is a whole, we could unpack that over an extended period. Uh, and that, that yeah, no, there's, there is a fair amount of uh, synergy between mindfulness practices and nonviolent communication. It's something that may be relevant uh, for you. Now, in this dynamic, in this kind of the openness of the feedback situation, the vulnerability of it, we, um, we, need, uh, we need another thing, which is to be comfortable being porous and dependent. dependent, intimate in a way. And I've noticed that, um, yeah, the the amount of intimacy we need to, and it's almost like we think of intimacy as good, but we actually have to tolerate it. Um, Sometimes it can feel more intimate saying, I'm angry with you, than it feels to say, I love you. But the consequence of not sharing openly with with each other is the cost is one of, of intimacy. That's, that's the cost. 
And I, I've been amazed when I do get the courage up to share something and say like, hey, that, that uh, um, you know, not in an aggressive way, but just like in a just clear way, like, you know, I'm angry with you. And that's received. It doesn't have to be perfectly, but even reasonably well. The kind of intimacy that emerges out of that the sense of, of closeness is quite, quite striking. And so our, our passivity on these fronts um, ultimately compromises our sense of, uh, of closeness with others. Now, all of this um, depends on having some context of care, support, kindness. Because to play at this razor's edge of disorientation, vulnerability, defensiveness, intimacy, there needs to be some level of confidence that uh, it's safe. And unfortunately that's not always there. But part of why we try to nourish all the goodness that exists in the relationships is it's like money in the bank for when we do need to have difficult conversations. And something I notice actually in the Dharma world is that um, people might know me over the period of, of months or years and, uh, um, and they, they know that I don't want to harm them. And that actually gives me license to say sometimes things that are jarring or difficult with the interest of serving their practice. But there's sort of a context of care and warmth so that the communication can be really open. Now we do this, we do this work uh, for ourselves and our relationships, but we also do it for the safety of our communities and specifically Dharma communities. When we look at the kind of most um, heartbreaking chapters of harm that have occurred, that's occurred in spiritual communities. What we see unifying all of those episodes is a kind of breakdown, a broken mechanism of feedback, where the information is not flowing to and from the teachers, 
to and from administrative staff, not flowing within the Sangha. And so uh, actually developing a kind of culture of feedback is part of what helps ensure the sanity and stability and safety of Dharma communities. So we're, we're doing this uh, for the, the welfare of the, the Sangha too. Sweet to be with you. Let's just sit for a moment. May our efforts here together be a cause for more joy, more peace, more kindness. May whatever goodness is here in the room May this resonate, reverberate with your own goodness. And spill out from our own hearts into our lives.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.